Take your Bibles and open to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll continue in our study of verses 8, 9, and 10. We'll only get through verse 9 today, and we will come back and catch verse 10 next week. And really, some of the most precious real estate in God's Word about the gospel and what it is and what it means. But as we've done each time in this study of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, though we're looking at the last part of this, it's important that we get the whole, so I'm going to read again the first 10 verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. I want to begin this morning with a Latin phrase, and it's an important Latin phrase. Credo ut intelligum. Credo ut intelligum. These words were spoken by Augustine of... Hippo, if you have a faith that extends back any amount of time, if you've been a Christian for very long, you have no doubt heard of St. Augustine, which is a city in Florida, it's really Augustine, and it doesn't matter how you say it ultimately, but Augustine, who was a dominant force in the first thousand years of Christianity. In fact, some say no more prominent or important theologian ever lived beyond Augustine in the first thousand years. He was a church bishop and a church leader in the fourth century, lived in North Africa, and even today we still look to Augustine for insights on the Trinity, insights on grace, insights on moral responsibility, insights on free will, and especially insights on that big word called epistemology, which is how do we know what we know and why do we believe what do we believe? One of his most enduring phrases is the Latin phrase, credo ut intelligum. And what that means is simply this. I believe in order to understand. Now, why is that important? I believe in order to understand. Critically important. Many approach Christianity with the idea that if they can understand enough and figure out Christianity's theological nuances deeply enough, then they can finally believe them. 
So you figure it out, you understand it, then you'll believe it. But in Augustine's formula, the opposite is true. He says we must believe in order to understand. His point is this, faith precedes spiritual sight and insight. Now, that's really subtle, but really important. If you wait until you've figured out every question you ever have and every answer has been provided before you'll truly have faith and believe, you're going to be waiting a long time. This is especially important on how we regard, how we approach salvation. There are so many theological nuances that people try to sort out before they come to Christ. For example, predestination and human responsibility. Many people feel like they have to have that absolutely nailed down, battened down, and wired before they'll really believe that the Bible is true and that Jesus is the answer. Others must figure out the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ. How can he be fully divine and fully human? Or that the kingdom of God is both present now and in the future. Or that God is sovereign over the world and yet there's a prince of the power of the air that allows evil to exist. How can God be good and evil exist in his world? Or they want to figure out, how is God three in one and one in three? How do we have a triune God who is one? Or how in the world does salvation come by grace, all of God, through faith, what I believe, but it's completely the work of God? Augustine's, Augustine's maxim means that if we try to understand all of these nuances in order to validate our faith before we believe, we will be endlessly frustrated. But if we take them by faith, if we believe God and take him at his word, understand and accept what he said by faith, then understanding will follow. I I can only tell you my own experience. I remember as a young man hearing about the Trinity, hearing it preached on, and and just saying, this doesn't make sense. I got to figure it out. And then finally, I just came to a point where I just couldn't sort it all out. And once I said, I believe this, even though I don't understand it, I began to understand the Trinity in ways that I never, never had before when I tried to put it into some kind of mathematical equation or tight little illustration. We will do well to remember Augustine as we study the book of Ephesians because those, those things that I listed that people try to figure out sometimes before they're converted, all of those are addressed in the book of Ephesians. But Paul begins by saying, God chooses, God predestines, God gives Give someone what they need to believe in faith and after belief begins to flow understanding and insight. Perhaps nothing is more important as believing that we are saved by grace, all of God, through faith, what we believe. I've told you before that one, one of the counseling issues that continually comes up, and if I was to be honest, if you keep talking to a person long enough, Uh, as someone who's trying to help another believer along, if you keep asking questions and you keep pressing in, almost always simmering right below the surface of almost every problem is doubting salvation. 
is wondering, am I really converted? Have I really believed? Have I really done enough, believed enough, tried enough, had enough faith for God to say you passed the test? And that typically comes because people look at their lives and they see sins of omission and commission. You understand what those are, right? Sins of omission and commission. Sins of commission is doing something that God said not to do. You, you commit a sin against God's command. He said, do this, and you, you uh, don't do this, rather, and you did it anyway. That's a sin of commission. But there's also a sin of omission. You omit doing what God said to do. So sometimes we do what God said not to do. That's a sin of commission. Sometimes we don't do what God said to do. That's a sin of omission. And you put all that in the blender of our feelings and you certainly have a recipe for a lack of assurance. I've experienced that. I have many times looked at how I've thought, what I've felt, what I've said, what I've done. I've oftentimes looked at my, my laziness, my skipping days of quiet times, my, my negligence in Bible reading, my attitude at church, and put all of that into my feelings. And that comes out with me saying, I, I, must, I must not be converted. Well, if you follow that line of reasoning, think about what you've said. Then we've said, what I do or what I don't do makes me saved or unsaved. That's pretty frightening. Who's the author of salvation in that equation? Me, you, what we're doing. Now, there's a fine line to walk here. I understand that. Paul will thread this needle brilliantly because look for a second. We're going to learn again today that salvation is completely by grace. It's all of God through faith. And yet, this is next week, verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should live or walk in them. There is a massive and a radical expectation that a believer lives differently than he did or she did as an unbeliever. But there is no expectation that that life is A, perfect, and B, contributes to our salvation. And when we begin thinking that way, we can easily slip into, I, it's called enoughism. I, I haven't done enough for God to help me, to allow me to come into heaven. So I trust that as we unpack these verses again, you can more clearly see the truths of, go, of the gospel and believe, and that belief can give you better understanding in your faith, in the Christian faith, in understanding justification coming into faith in Christ and sanctification growing in Christ. Now, in our last study, we said about Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, that it might be the most succinct and clearest summation of the gospel in the Bible. Having studied again another week, I, I stand by that. It is all here. It is wonderfully spelled out. For by grace, you have been saved. Just stop right there for a moment. Before anyone can experience the new birth, before anyone can desire to be saved, you have to believe that you're lost or, or, or you're in trouble. No one is seeking salvation who doesn't believe they need it. Honestly, we were talking about this as a, as a staff and elder team in recent months. Johnson County, where we live, and 
even across the line in Jackson County and in the surrounding Kansas City metroplex, it's really difficult when you begin to tell people that you, to, in evangelism that you need salvation because most people don't think they need anything. Especially in Johnson County where they, they have a place to live, they have things to eat, they have a paycheck coming in. They don't feel like they need anything. And so when you tell them you have a great need for your salvation to be saved, you're in trouble with God. We'll push back on that. By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one should brag or boast. We said last time, every religion in the world, every religion in history, boils down into one of two options. It's a religion of human achievement, what you can do to better yourself, to be worthy of heaven. And it's a religion of divine accomplishment, what God has done for you on your behalf you could never do and is accomplished in our stead. Every other religion besides biblical Christianity believes that a person's moral achievement, their good works, their efforts to be better than they are bad or better than other people, to gain merit or favor with God, that's the way they ultimately enter into heaven. You hear people say it all the time. Well, I'm, I mean, I hope I'm good enough to go, but what makes me think I'm good enough is I'm better than Hitler or Saddam Hussein. They, they find someone really easy to measure themselves against and say, well, I, I'm probably going to make the cut based on them. Doing better or trying harder or at least being better than others all still falls under certain condemnation. We stand before God alone, not in comparison with anyone. And we have been sinners from birth. How do we know that? Look back at verse 1. You were dead, spiritually dead, and your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly lived. This is the walking dead. These are the people who live in their spiritual deadness, alive to what? The course of this world. Alive to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan himself, of the spirit, that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Then he says, among them too we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So we have a problem of being in a, a godless worldview and believing that and thinking like that. We have the influence of Satan himself who presses on that worldview and on our, our thinking to think godless or less than God or inaccurate thoughts. And then we have from the inside out, our hearts are bent against God and toward ourselves in sin. We also studied that in, in the Reformation, uh, remember the Reformation of uh, the Protestant Reformation was a reform against the wrong teaching of the Catholic Church, which taught that God's grace in a person's life was not enough to save them. You must add your own works, your own merit, and even, even the prayers and merits of others after you're dead to get you from a state of, of being unsaved to save or from being dead in purgatory where your sins are purged more to get to heaven. The Protestants pushed back on that and said, no, 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 that, that it's not God plus us. It's sola scriptura. God alone works and speaks through his word, not the church fathers or the pope, scripture alone. Sola fide, we are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ, not by our works, which we add to them. We are, so, uh, we are uh, 
saved by gratia, grace alone, which means that God is the generator of our faith, not ourselves. We're saved by Christ alone, or solus Christus. He's the only way to heaven, no other alternative. And soli deo gloria is all to the glory of God alone. No one else gets the credit except God. All of those feed together, and we, we noted, feed together into our understanding of salvation. We noted last time that standing out in this passage is sola gratia, grace alone. The engine of salvation, the generator of salvation, the impetus for salvation all comes from God's grace, or you could say God the gracious God. We learn again that grace is amazing and we should be freshly amazed. What is grace? It's God's unmerited, unearned favor that he gives to sinners who don't deserve it. That's what grace is. And we contrast that, as you know, with mercy. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. And we find both of those in these first 10 verses. So last week, we began looking at four facets of the doctrine, this doctrine of sola gratia, grace alone. And just very briefly, we studied the last two last week. Let me remind you of what those were. The first facet of the doctrine of sola gratia is this. Salvation is dependent on grace. Salvation is dependent on grace. How do you know that? Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. He's actually expanding on what he said back in verse 5, which was a parenthetical kind of explosion of his theology. By grace you have been saved. And we looked at this very deeply last week. God demonstrated his grace toward us as believers, by being believers. And you can go back and look at that if you want to in last week's sermon. We rightly say that grace is God's unearned, unmerited favor and kindness. Secondly, we looked at the fact that salvation is accessed by faith. It comes to us by grace. It's dependent on grace, the grace of God. And secondly, it's accessed by faith. This is where... He combines sola fide and sola gratia, faith alone. For by grace you have been saved, saved from self, saved from sin, saved from Satan, and saved from God. His wrath, we're children of wrath, expecting hell in verse 3. And how do we get that? How do we get that grace? And the answer is you believe that God gives it. By faith. Grace has saved us through faith. That's the means. By grace we are saved from sin, Satan, self, hell, from God himself. And the means to access getting such grace is to believe, is to have faith. And faith is never produced by our ungenerated human nature. Here's what's good news. Everyone wants to know, we're talking about assurance, right? Everyone wants to know, how how can I be sure that I have grace? And the question is, do you believe? Will you believe? Because faith is generated by God. If you believe the gospel, you have been given grace. That's the greatest evidence is you believe the gospel to be true. You're saved through faith. 
through believing what God has done. This is the most amazing reality in the Bible, that God has said, I am going to do all that needs to be done for you to be saved. All you have to do to be with me forever is believe that I've done that for you. It's incredible. It's overwhelming. We looked at those two last week. Now we're going to take these other two facets and we're going to need to be a little bit theological on this one. Salvation is monergistic in generation. Just work with me here. Monergistic in generation or in its origin. It's an important word that you need to be familiar with. And that, verse 8 at the end, and that, that's salvation, that's what he's speaking to. The salvation is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now this term monergism, you need to be very familiar with. It comes from two Greek words, mono and ergon. Mono, alone or solo or by oneself. Ergon means to work. Literally, all the work is done by one. All the work is done by God. Monergism. It's all God's work in salvation. That's what that word means. Monergism holds that God works through the Holy Spirit to bring about the salvation of an individual. Spiritual regeneration regardless of anything that individual contributes or even cooperates with. It's completely God's work. Now, in biblical imagery, monergism means that God is the one who gives eyes to see. We're spiritually blind, and the fact that we can see anything in God's word as true is a gift of God giving us spiritual sight. Or God is the one who gives ears to hear. These are Jesus designations. Those who understand truth to be truth, understand the Bible to be God's truth and God's word, those who believe that, those who have an affinity for that, have been given that ability and that belief from God. God is the one who gives understanding. God is the one who illumines the heart to accept the things of God, that's scripture and salvation as true. Any unbeliever can look at a Bible verse and know what the subject and the, or the nouns and the, the predicate and the pronouns and the apodosis and, and the, um, the, the parts of speech and figure out what, what that verse says, even what it means, but only the believer has their mind turned on to believe that that's true from God and respond to it. It's the doctrine of illumination. In other words, God acts alone to save the sinner. The responsibility for salvation does not rest on you, cannot rest on me, to any degree. That's called synergism as opposed to monergism. Synergism is the Arminian view that we cooperate with God and it's God and us and we get together and figure out that, that we want to be saved and, and we work together and get ourselves saved. That's synergism. We work together with God. No, we're monergistic. We only respond to what God's done in our minds and in our hearts by His sovereign grace. In order to make this point, Paul provides a contrast here at the end of verse 8. Really interesting. 
it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. That's saying the same thing in two different ways from the negative and the positive. Salvation is not of yourselves, then what is it? It's the gift of God. Paul explains that God is the source of salvation, but he also explains the opposite. You're not. I'm not. And by this, he refers to the whole of salvation. Listen to how he explains this in Romans chapter 11, verse 6. And if by grace, salvation is by grace, if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So if we contribute anything, then grace is nullified, Paul says. There cannot be even the smallest contribution of our own works to goodness or being worthy or contributing to God's looking at us with favor in our salvation or else grace would no longer be operative. No one can be saved except by God's unmerited grace. And that's made crystal clear by this description of, of, of uh, salvation as a gift. This, this has, if you're a believer, this has got to be one of your favorite concepts in God's word. Salvation is a gift. It's a gift. When the Bible speaks of salvation as a gift from God, it emphasizes the fact that salvation is something freely given from him, by him, not something we earn God is a giver of many gifts, but none greater than salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes there's faith in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Well, it's so easy so wrong to look at our salvation as something that we're, we're kind of working on to get saved. No, it's a gift. It's, it's receiving a gift. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the, now we find out something else about this gift. The what? Free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He offers salvation as a gift. This should sound too good to be true. This should sound fantastical. If you understand Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 and how, how bad our situation was and God said, I'm going to be rich in mercy, express my love to you and give you what you don't deserve which is salvation and holiness and standing with me that can only be accomplished through my son. I'm going to give that to you. And by the way, you were my enemy and you were dead and I owed you nothing. That's why he says in 2 Corinthians 9, 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable, his unspeakable gift. If you go back one verse, the surpassing grace of God in you is that unspeakable gift that he says we should always be thankful to God for. Are you thankful that salvation cannot be earned? You will only be thankful for that if you know the frustration of trying to be good enough and knowing you can't be good enough. Are you thankful that salvation cannot be bought? It can't be bought with church attendance. 
It can't be bought by niceness. It can't be bought with a good marriage or good parenting. It can't be bought by contributions to a a benevolent charity or even to the church. Salvation cannot be purchased. It can't be bought. You don't have enough. Salvation cannot be won. This is not a race that you can win. This is not a match that you can win. Salvation can only (laughs) be received as a gift. Because salvation is of grace, it cannot be anything other than a gift. Have you... We do this sometimes, but can I just ask you to pause for just a brief moment? Have you received... Have you received God's gift of grace? Have you received his offer, his gift of salvation? Do you understand what it means to be dead and separated from God? We heard from Emmeline in her baptism testimony that she would lay awake at night terrified that she wasn't a believer. I remember having that same experience. So much of my experience of laying in bed trembling, I would hear the thunder uh, at night and think Jesus is coming back and and go check to see if my parents were there, if they'd been raptured and I'd been left. I mean, I was terrified. But my response was, if I just do a little better, that'll take care of it. If I try harder, maybe God will look and say, you passed the test, you made the cut. Now, that's trying to earn salvation. Have you received God's gift, his offer of, I have done what needs to be done for you to be with me forever, and I did it by giving you my son in life and death and in resurrection, who sits at my right hand praying for those who believe. Let's go back to John 3.16 again. For God so loved the world that he gave, there's the gift, his only begotten son, that whoever believes, that the believing ones, those who believe the gospel. Listen, I've been overwhelmed by this. I just want to drag you guys along with me. I, I am freshly amazed that I contribute nothing. That God did everything that needs to be done for me to be saved. All I have to do is believe that. Is that amazing? That's grace. If you haven't, will you receive a gift? (laughs) Will you receive God's gift of salvation today by believing that it's true? And he will save you and give you the gift by simply believing that he's giving you the gift. It's incredible. Monergistic in how it's generated. God doing it all. And listen, friends, praise God he did it all because it was up, if it was up to you, if it was up to me, we would be hopelessly lost forever. Never being good enough. Never trying hard enough. Our assurance is monergistic as well in what God has done. Now, I know what you may be saying. Well, man, if God's given us grace, I should just live how I want. Don't have to worry about that. And 
We'll see this next week, but Paul in Romans 6 verse 1 says, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound, that we would experience more grace? And what does he say? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So there are consequences, but those are consequences, not prerequisites. There's a difference. And we get a hint of that in our fourth facet which is really an introduction into verse 10, which we'll get to next week. Salvation is dependent on grace. Salvation is accessed by faith. Salvation is monergistic in generation. And fourthly, salvation is Godward in glory. It has to be. This is the the obvious caboose to the engine we've been following. Verse 9, not as a consequence or result of what you've done of works, And I love what he says here. That no one would boast. He uses a contrast again. Two contrasts in a row. Not as a result of works that no one would boast. What is the, what's the assumption there? If salvation could be accomplished by anything you did, guess who would take the glory for it? You would. I would. He points to the reality that salvation is such an amazing gift, such an amazing thing, that someone should naturally give God the credit for it and not take credit for it. I've used this illustration before, and it's silly enough to use again. Let's say that um, Picasso invites you over for dinner. And you're going into dinner and you're walking toward the kitchen and, and you realize on your way in, oh, I should have bought a housewarming gift. And so on the way to the kitchen, you go through a hallway and you see some of his own paintings on the wall. And you say, got it. And you take one of Picasso's paintings off the wall, you walk into the kitchen and you say, so glad that you had me here. I, w- I want to thank you for, for, uh, for inviting me and my family over here. Here's a gift I want to give you. Your head and your face are, are illustrated. What? That's silly. God gives you a gift, and then we're going to turn around and say, look what I did, God. Aren't you impressed with me? It's not as a result of our good deeds, our works, what we contribute. Boy, do you in any sense feel or believe that you contribute anything to your own salvation? Philip Melanchthon the great reformer and friend of Martin Luther said this. I want you to hear this. I'll I'll read it twice. Melanchthon said this, I contribute nothing to my salvation except the sin from which I need to be saved. He's so right. I contribute nothing to my salvation except the sin from which I need to be saved. He's right goes back to the notion of our works, our goodness, our having anything to do with God accepting of us and there is no such criterion. 2 Timothy 1 verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But that raises a a natural and an obvious question. 
And if you'll follow along Paul's argument in his writings in the New Testament, every time he goes into any depth about grace, it's always followed, we're going to look at this in depth next week, it's always followed by, but don't presume on grace. Does it matter if how we live after we've received God's gift, after we receive God's grace? He anticipates this and answers in verse 10. We are his masterpiece, his poems, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, saved for good deeds, good works, righteous living, which God prepared beforehand so that we would live in or we would walk in them. This is Paul saying the same thing in verse 10 as James says in James 2.26. Faith without works is what? It's dead. You don't really have faith. So you cannot believe unless God makes you believe. And the genuine authentic, uh, authentication of that belief is that you live in response to that faith. Two takeaways for today. Two simple takeaways. Takeaway number one is a question. They're both questions. Have you received God's gift of grace? Are you a believer? Do you lie awake at night and wonder, did I make the cut? Am I in the, in the, in the kingdom? Am I, am I going to heaven? Would death separate me forever? Is, am I hellbound? Have you received God's gift? Oh, listen, please, I would beg you, do not leave today without understanding that believing the gospel is faith that saves. And there's a commensurate reflex and response of the soul to want to follow and obey Christ because of that. Understand where faith and works operate we come by faith. Works are the way that we become holy and sanctified. And we're going to look at sanctification in our next study. Have you received God's gift? Our prayer will be open in a minute. Please don't leave without, without knowing that. Second question. This is for believers. Do you doubt God's gift of grace? Do you doubt God's gift of grace? In other words... Is your assurance or lack of assurance attached to you and your work or God and his gift? I'm not preaching antinomianism. antinomianism. You're going to know what that is next week. It's going to be a theological discussion next week. That means you live any way that you want to. You know, there's no law that you have to obey with Christ. But there's no law you have to obey to receive God's gift. You just receive it by faith. You believe it. And then works are a response. Obedience is a response to that. God has never let anyone into his kingdom based on what they did. It's all what he has done. In Romans chapter 5 verse one, we have to remember, especially as believers, therefore having been justified by faith, what we've been talking about, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained, listen to this, our introduction by faith, faith got us where we're into the kingdom, into this grace in which we stand. Grace is not only the way into the kingdom, grace is the way to progress through this life. It's all of grace. And, and, and if, you're, if you're asking, well, how, what does that mean practically? That's the next verse. And what Paul will explain to us in, be, in becoming his workmanship, which he created for us before the world began, that we would have lives that we understand how to pursue that will please him, not in order to earn his favor, but because we have already been granted his favor. So next week is going to be a deep dive, a glorious deep dive into understanding our sanctification and how that stands in comparison to and contrasted to our justification.